0: Hello, and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Baska, and I am happy to announce that we have just been named to the top 40 social justice podcasts by Feedspot. So hey, but in other news, I am here with David Zucker, director of the new documentary premiering at South by Southwest, Your Friend Memphis. So, David, I absolutely adore this film. It's one of the very few examples of documentaries about characters with disabilities that actually does not lean into inspiration porn at all. And I deeply appreciated that about this. I'm so glad. What brought you to this project and to this interest in Memphis DeAngelis' story and life?
1: I, uh, out of college, was um, was hired to work on set uh, of this under-budgeted Christmas film shooting outside of Austin. Um, and Memphis had also been hired to work on a set well, on the set because he was um, an aspiring filmmaker. And we were shooting overnights in dog parks. So everyone was kind of miserable, but Memphis was not miserable. He was really excited to be there. He just loves the atmosphere of film sets. And so he was kind of going around just meeting people and talking about his goals in film and everything. And he had this real presence that just for me made him like a very memorable character in a, you know, everyone else, I was kind of like, whatever. And uh, a few days into this shoot um, under circumstances that to this day, I do not understand genuinely. He was fired in front of everyone. And so he left set and the month long film shoot continued. And afterwards I reached out to him kind of to like learn more and to, to I had this idea of, of making a film um, about what it must be like for him to kind of navigate film spaces um, with a disability. I learned that he had actually been vlogging about his personal experiences for like nearly a decade at that point. Um, and he had this really strong desire to what he called share his story Um, And so I was like, well, what is, what is that story? Like, how can we kind of delve further into this? And so we decided to embark on this, on this like filmmaking journey together, but we didn't know that it was going to tumble into a, you know, a seven year project. It, It started much, much smaller.
0: Wow. And for it to start is specifically about film sets is also a very interesting thing because so much of his passion clearly is related to film as you see in the documentary. And it is one of those spaces that is highly inaccessible.
1: Highly inaccessible for sure. And yet a very special space in some instances where people can build community and feel as if they're working towards, you know, some kind of a larger goal. And, and um, the the film set experiences that he had had up to that point had been some of the, you know, his most sort of fulfilling experiences of his life. So. In a way, it was like this like drug that he was chasing, you know?
0: Yeah, but it's really a beautiful thing to see how you shape the narrative in spite of the fact that it starts from there, being able to work in the relationships with his parents and the push and pull between independence and reliance and all of these different kinds of conflicts that enter into it, first around his love life, but then also in terms of his relationships with parents. I know that Memphis himself says conflict is story. But I want to just know, for you, when you were pursuing these conflicting storylines, how did you feel about pushing in too much versus not enough?
1: I think the, the good thing about the way the project started is that Memphis brought a lot of enthusiasm to the process from the beginning. Um, and so he didn't Put up a lot of walls. As you said, he has this attitude that like, pretty much whatever happens is a valuable learning experience. And it's an adventure. And it allows him to really like, engage deeply with his own life. So it was really more like as the process went along, you know, an ongoing consent process, it was kind of like, are you cool with us being here? Can we ask you more about this? I mean, and I think that process, I hope is taking place, you know, across all documentary filmmaking, but, but, um, but we know it's not. So sure. (laughs) We sure do. And then I think having buy-in from the other characters was, was also a useful test for us as filmmakers to, to ensure, you know, like it's not like one person was saying, Hey, it's really messed up that you guys are, here for this. It was kind of like everyone seemed to buy into the process of like allowing this person to tell his story on a on a wider and larger and more longitudinal scale than than might otherwise have have, you know, manifested. But I don't know that there's like a you know, it's it, it's a thing that I continue to question to this day. It's like I mean, you know, documentaries filled with these ethical conundrums and I I would not say that I have the correct answers, but I do feel extremely grateful that they allowed me the chance to to make it over such a long period of time and to watch this evolution.
0: Yeah. And how many changes did you see within his character, even beyond what we see on screen in the course of those seven years?
1: That's a really fun question because Memphis, perhaps like everyone, changed a lot and also didn't change at all. You know, like it's like, uh, we'd be going through footage from the last year that we filmed and or 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 from the first year and discover that there were just certain interests that he was talking about that he was still talking about 5 years later and we hadn't necessarily clued into it the first time we heard it or the second time but like as we're cycling through footage year after year you start to discover just these little things that that ground people over the course of years. In terms of larger evolution, I think he became a little bit less optimistic about the world. You know, I mean, I think he went through this like real coming of age process about how people are going to treat him in certain spaces about things that he's going to be locked out of, but also what he's capable of. And yeah, it's a hard question because there's just so much. Um, But I, I will say... All the years that we filmed with him, he was living in an apartment in Austin that he didn't feel super happy about. And right at the end, like right after we finished filming, he moved solo to Denver and he got, you know, a job working um, at the airport, which was something that he had wanted for a long time. And so he's, he's really on to totally new things. And who's to say if, you know, he could have made that happen for himself years before that. So he certainly grew in all sorts of ways that like a- allowed himself to, to propel himself to new places.
0: It's incredible to see him kind of take that daring leap to go to Arizona in the film when he just says, I want to fly, and then he's on a plane. And the way that you portray that was really quite incredible to me. I feel like a lot of people would tend to give more preamble to that. And so really giving him a sense of agency throughout the film really felt very valuable to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, against many people's advice, to be honest, we didn't want for this to be a film where his parents were constantly speaking for him, where his choices were being explained by someone else. And often he wasn't necessarily fully explaining his choices even to us. And so, hence the style of the film emerged where, as you're saying, you really do kind of just watch him make a pretty quick decision and take off. And that's just who he is. I mean, he's, he's impulsive and he's an adventurer. um, And he kind of jumps first and figures out where he's going to land after. So to the degree that I am capable of it, and of course there's limitations to it, I wanted to make a film through his eyes. And I think a lot of films say that, but at at least as I watched other films about people with disabilities, I didn't often feel that that was like truly, you know, coming to fruition. And so I hope that I was able to achieve that here.
0: I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I saw that Reed Davenport is an associate producer on this, who just won an award at Sundance for his personal yeah. narrative doc. And I wondered how much his influence helped on set as another person with CP.
1: Yeah. I mean, Reed is the best and um, is extremely thoughtful and gave us critical feedback from the perspective of someone with CP, but also, as you're saying, like he just won the directing award at Sundance, like just from a very thoughtful filmmaker. Um, And so, yeah, we met Reed at a festival in like 2019 when Quite a bit of the film had already been shot, but the edit was a mess, and he really helped us kind of figure out the dynamics of characters, and um, yeah, he's been an invaluable resource for us.
0: How did you feel about the barriers between you and your subject in this documentary? Because a lot of times, people who are non-disabled, or as I like to call them, not yet disabled, have a hard time relating necessarily to a lot of the struggles, but you seem to pick up on that fairly quickly.
1: I'm glad to hear that assessment. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we, it, it was hard from the beginning. The question was like, you know, we knew we didn't want the film to be populated with doctor's appointments and with mm-hmm. discussions about like what exactly CP is. Like that's something someone can go learn. And that's something that pretty much anytime someone sees Memphis at a coffee shop or at Whole Foods or whatever, like they are immediately imposing various assumptions about his you know, about his CP onto him. And so we wanted to tell a story that nearly could stand on its own, totally unrelated to his disability. And yet, you know, there's always like the question of erasure. There's the question of, you know, because like the his CP is partially because it's imposed by others and partially because inherently it's, you know, affecting things. But like it is a part of everything, but yet here's this guy who's just like pursuing love and he's trying to find a job and he's, he's trying to find a job that's fulfilling to him, not just one that like will technically pay him $12 an hour or something. And these are issues that are not unique to Memphis. They're experienced by a lot of people. And so I think we tried to really like take him seriously, and I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but just like take him at like, what is happening in your life? And how can we build that into a narrative that is both true to you, and is also going to kind of read for an audience and help people understand what exactly your experience is like?
0: Yeah, I also think that a lot of that is built up even in the beginning with him interacting with guns, for example, because that's something you wouldn't, Automatically assume a person with CP would want to do even even just that beat alone is quite powerful. But what for you was your favorite beat of the film as it was finally shaped? I have to know.
1: Yeah, I mean the the shotgun in the backyard with his dad is uh, is is a favorite. That was in our second year of shooting where we had kind of gotten past a lot of the obvious stuff. And now we're really just like in it for these, for these unexpected moments. And suddenly we're just like in his dad's backyard in like rural Texas. And Memphis just has a shotgun and it's just like, it just wasn't something that I knew that he did. And, um, and then he hits it. And I was like, Oh my God. But you know, I love the scene with the dog further in the film. I mean, I, I love the stuff with Seneca because for me, it like, resonates in a big way, just about like growing up and navigating difficult kind of like crush scenarios. I, you know, I don't, I don't view that as unique for him. And so um, I connected to that really strongly.
0: Yeah, and the storyline with Seneca, where she is the huge crush of his life, that he's terrified of being rejected by her and keeps envisioning this Forrest Gump-Jenny situation in his head. I found that a fascinating interaction. Was there more to that interaction that cast a light on the relationship?
1: I don't think in that particular moment, it sort of went in another direction. Um, You know, Robert was an interesting character because he didn't have the the same protective instinct that Memphis's parents had mm-hmm. so he was he was really like one of the only people that we ever saw who um, cause I'm sure there are others, but you know, maybe we weren't present for it, but Robert was like sitting there trying to tell it like it is, and there is no objective truth. And so it's like, you know, who's to say whether or not he was imposing something that he, he shouldn't have, but it, there seemed to be so few people who were willing to just say, Hey Memphis, like, here's what I think is actually happening here rather than just being hands-off because it gets complicated to be hands-on.
0: Well, and a lot of times that happens with people who are disabled, that you are constantly sugarcoating things or trying to make it seem like things are okay rather than talking about the truth and being confrontational when it's needed. I found that moment in the film really incredible for that reason. Yeah, And I also wondered, in terms of portraying Texas the way that you do so particularly, and premiering at South by Southwest, I'm just curious what that feels like for you, talking so frankly about SSI and Medicaid in Texas and Texas politics.
1: Yeah, I mean, two part answer. (laughs) On the South by end, I'm very, very excited to be premiering there. The first footage I ever shot, like the first frame of footage I ever shot for this film was filmed of Memphis volunteering at South by in 2015, which is something that he loved to do every year. And so there, you know, it feels like a homecoming. There's something very, very exciting about that for me. Um, And I hope it's going to be a great experience for Memphis as well. Politically it's like everyone deserves to know what is taking place here. Memphis has been denied support on the basis that he quote can work, which is, you know, these are denied to him.
0: But showing all of that information about SSI, that's unbelievable to me. Not that I haven't heard a million stories like that from my friends, but I'm one of the few people I know who got onto SSI and was approved in a span of a month. To hear these stories about people who encounter these struggles is heart-wrenching, so I can't imagine what it was like for you as you're watching all of this.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's shocking and felt absurd. And, you know, and the other piece of it is that some people are living lives where they have like, the money to pursue legal action, when they're unfairly denied support, or, you know, or they have, they have parents who are together who can collaborate really effectively in supporting their child and so on. And and both Eduardo and Christine, Memphis's mom and dad, in different ways, you know, are, are extremely supportive of Memphis and and want the best for him, but all of these pose unique challenges. So yeah, I mean, it's just it's like a tricky situation. And Memphis has not been dealt a fair hand. And, and I don't mean that in terms of disability. I mean that in terms of like, the, the, you know, the way Texas has not properly supported this person.
0: Well, and additionally, it's really incredible because for how outrageous these things are, I love that the camera never imposes its own opinion on any of it either.
1: Very glad to hear that.
0: It really is one of those things where it's letting people decide for themselves how they're going to react to individual pieces of information. But then on top of that, I love the way that you have these sequences where people are outright saying, fuck you to Memphis on camera, which is shocking but at the same time to hear that from his father, to hear that from his friend, it's something that you don't get to see very often on film.
1: Yes, my own perspective of life is that it's like, it's messy and it's ugly sometimes. And, and so, I, you know, I find real catharsis in just seeing those scenes on screen, kind of regardless of, of any context, but for sure to see Memphis's dad say something like that shows the complexity of the situation and of their relationship and that like these are in you know for some people in some circumstances the reality of the situation i suspect that it's quite a few people's realities and so i think to be able to see that on screen i i hope will be valuable that's certainly like the kind of moment that makes me nervous as a filmmaker um as a, as a filmmaker who doesn't identify as disabled to say you know I think this is a scene that should be in it and here's why but yeah I mean we tried to just say like these are the scenes that were most striking that felt like critical moments in terms of the evolution that we captured and that and that really like dig deep and show something honest and so yeah I mean the acceptance into South by makes me feel like there's like a real audience for this and I just I hope I hope people get the chance to see it
0: I really hope so, too, because it's a wonderful film, and it's such a passionately humanist documentary in a way that you rarely see, actually, on this subject. Not that any film has ever been made about Memphis DeAngelis before, and he is an extremely unique individual, but you very rarely see anything that does not focus on cerebral palsy if you happen to have cerebral palsy and be on a screen, period. Totally. Totally. I absolutely love that you didn't go there and I absolutely love what you did with it. And I really wish you all the luck in the world at South by and I wish you all the success with this film.
1: Thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation.
0: It has. Thank you so much. And talk to you later.
1: Talk to you. Thanks.
0: Bye. Before you go, did you know that we're presenting at South by Southwest? Rabia and I will be talking about crafting a culture of accessibility in the film and TV industry. Please stay tuned, and we will share more about what's going on in Austin. Thank you for listening, and thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now And what treaties govern those territories? I record this podcast on the site of land stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch.